Yesterday we had a work party at the church. Thank you to everyone who came and gave your time to participate in that. And as part of that, I don't know if it happened in the end, but part of what was scheduled for yesterday was a deep clean of the kitchen. When we hear that, we realize that means more than just a normal week-to-week clean. A deep clean goes beyond the visible surfaces and it gets to the bits that are hardly ever visible. Kitchens need that kind of cleansing work. So do homes and so do human beings. There's a story told about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was the man who created Sherlock Holmes. Now, I don't know if this story is true or not, but the way the story goes is that for a joke, Arthur Conan Doyle sent an anonymous letter to 12 of his friends. And the letter simply said, Flee, all is revealed. The story goes that within 24 hours, all 12 of those people had left the country. Now, they were respected members of the community. Arthur Conan Doyle had no reason to think they were hiding anything. The letter was just a prank. But those people obviously had such guilty consciences. They were so plagued by things they'd done in the past that the words, all is revealed, sent those people running. William Shakespeare had a profound understanding of humanity, especially the effects of a guilty conscience. His character, Richard III, says this at one point. My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. And many of us know what that's like. And maybe a lot of the time we're just too busy to hear our conscience. But in quiet moments, how many of us can say, my conscience has plenty of tales to tell. And every tale condemns me for a villain. But there is another way for us to live. In the fourth century, a man called Augustine wrote his autobiography. He called it Confessions. It's acknowledged as one of the best books ever written. Augustine was a Christian, and in the first part of the book, he describes the sins of his youth. And as he describes those sins, he makes a remarkable statement. He looks back at his rebellion and his sin, and he says... But my soul feels no fear from the recollection. Wouldn't it be priceless to have that kind of clear conscience? But how do we get it? How do we move from our conscience condemning us for a villain to being able to speak about our past and say my soul feels no fear from the recollection? Well, our passage this morning is going to show us how. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Hebrews chapter 9. In the church Bible, that's page 1206. 
and in the large print Bibles, 1869. One of the main messages of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is our high priest. And to show us what that means, the writer keeps on taking us back to the Old Testament. And what we find there helps us to understand Jesus and his work. And in chapter 9 of Hebrews, we discover that Jesus brings a deeper cleansing than anything else could ever bring. It's only through Jesus that you and I can remember our past in all of its gory detail and say, my soul feels no fear from the recollection. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 14. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. This is God's word. And this part of God's word does two things. First, it shows us the parts that religious effort can't reach. And then it points us to the blood that cleanses to the core. First, 
the parts that religious effort can't reach. The tabernacle was mentioned already back in chapter 8 of Hebrews. During Old Testament times, the tabernacle was the focus of Israel's worship. But chapter 8 told us that ornate, beautifully crafted tent, it was not the true tabernacle. It was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. God commanded Moses to build a tent on earth to help people understand the reality in heaven. And last time we tried to understand heaven by picturing a theater. Imagine you're sitting in the audience looking up at the stage which has the curtains drawn across it. And we said last time lots of things can happen on the front part of the stage, in front of the curtain. But behind the curtain, there is a whole other dimension. It's only when the curtains are pulled back that you can appreciate the full depth of the theater experience. And we said that is close to the way heaven and earth are presented in the Bible. Heaven is not up there in the sky somewhere. It's another dimension of reality. It's where God dwells, and it's hidden from our view. It's behind a curtain. You and I live our lives on the front part of the stage. And here's where the Old Testament tabernacle comes in. It stood right in the middle of the Israelite camp. And every day as they went about their normal lives, the tabernacle reminded the Israelites of this division between heaven and earth. How did it do that? Well, here is a model of the tabernacle. You can see there's the uh, outer court, which has the altar for animal sacrifices. But here's a diagram showing the inside of the tent, which obviously we can't see in the picture. The inside of the tent was divided into two rooms. The outer room was known as the holy place. And the second inner room was the most holy place, or the holy of holies. It's referred to both ways. And that second room was where God's actual presence dwelt, above the Ark of the Covenant. The top of the Ark had two carved angelic figures called cherubim, and God made himself present above the cherubim. And in all of this, as he talks about it, the writer of Hebrews, what he's interested in is this division of the tabernacle into two rooms. He does list the items in the tent, the lampstand and the table and the bread and all that, but he makes it clear what he's actually interested in is not the contents of the tabernacle. It's this division of the tabernacle into two rooms. That's why after he lists the contents, he says in verse 5, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Why? Because what we're going to focus on is the significance of the two rooms. Look at verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room 
and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Verse 6 focuses on the outer room, the holy place. The priests had their daily responsibilities and duties to do in that room. They had to trim the lamps on the lampstand. They had to burn incense. They had to replace the consecrated bread that was always on the table. They had lots of religious duties to carry out. And all those duties had been given to them by God. They all had a purpose and they all had a significance. They were good. But all that religious activity done day after day after day It didn't get anyone behind the curtain. The first room was a place of busy and reverent religion all the time. But none of it ever earned access into God's presence. And there is a parallel here to our religious activity. There are lots of things we do for God. Things that we do in obedience to God. But none of those things ever earn us access into God's presence. All of that, all of the things that we do, are outer room activity. If you think back to our illustration of the theater, all of our religious activity is front stage activity. As good as it might be, a whole lifetime of it, a dozen lifetimes of it, will not get us behind the curtain. It won't gain us acceptance with the God who dwells behind the curtain. So then, what does get us behind the curtain? What gains us acceptance there? The answer is blood. We might not like to think about that. It might make us queasy. It might even disgust us. But it is the consistent message of the Bible. Only blood gets human beings behind the curtain. Only blood can gain us acceptance with God. Look how verse 7 makes that clear. Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. Blood is the only way of access to God. But why? How? This raises so many questions for us. So think of it this way. Blood tells us we are dealing with something serious. That's true in life in general. When Megan was a girl, if she or her brother or sister ever knocked on their parents' door in the night... Her dad would always shout out the same thing. There'd better be blood. In other words, if you're waking me up in the middle of the night, it had better be for something serious. And I will know it's serious if there's blood. Well, when you and I read the Old Testament, we know pretty quickly Something is serious. 
The Old Testament is drenched with blood. It reeks of blood. First of all, there's human blood. Brother kills brother. When Cain kills his brother Abel, God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In other words, God is saying, your brother's blood is serious on two levels. It's a serious problem between you and your family. And it's a serious problem between you and me. Your sin separates you from one another and from your maker. And that continues with every new generation. The evil and sin done by human beings is not just serious on this level between humans. It's serious on this level too, between us and God. And so later on, God said, humanity has a serious problem. And that requires a serious solution. And God showed that by introducing a whole elaborate system of animal sacrifices. Day after day in Israel, bulls and goats were slaughtered and they were sacrificed on the altar. And as Israel saw the ground soaked in blood again, they couldn't avoid the message, we have a serious problem that needs a serious solution. And that serious solution, we can see, involves a life that is poured out in sacrifice. Nothing else can clean up our mess and put right our evil. Nothing else can restore us to relationship with God. That was the message, and it was heard most clearly on the annual Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur. That's what verse 7 is referring to. And Steve read some of the details of that earlier from Leviticus. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest came with blood. He took that blood behind the curtain and he did not die. The people he was representing did not die. He stood in God's presence, accepted and welcomed. Lots of religious activity went on in the outer room of the tent. But none of it ever got you behind the curtain. Trimming the lamps and burning incense and replacing the bread was all good stuff. But only blood got you behind the curtain. The blood then, which symbolized death, became the means of life. Or at least in the Old Testament, it showed how people would receive life. The Day of Atonement itself didn't bring life. How do we know that? Because it was repeated every year. Remember, the Old Testament tabernacle was not the real tabernacle. It was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And so the sacrifices at the Old Testament tabernacle They were only copies and shadows of the true sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats was an illustration. 
It would take a much greater sacrifice to wipe away our guilt and restore us to God. The sacrifices on the Day of Atonement did a great job of showing the way, but they could never make the way. And so we read in verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. The Old Testament tabernacle was a place of religious busyness and human offerings. All that went on there had a purpose, but none of it opened the way into God's presence. And none of it, we're told, could clear the conscience of the worshiper. And because my religious effort can't get me to God, it can never quiet that voice in my heart that condemns me for a villain. Even if I were to pour out my own blood, if there was some great act of devotion that I could do, even that wouldn't be enough. Every one of us in this room has done and said and thought things that we are ashamed of. In some cases, they are things that we are deeply ashamed of. Those things are a stain on our conscience. And no amount of regret on our part can wash away that stain. No amount of religious effort can scrub it off or blot it out. Whatever it is, maybe there are times when it fades from our memories. But it just takes a word or a picture or a place to bring it all flooding back to us. Maybe you've done something and nobody else knows about it. But that only makes it worse. Because it makes you feel like a fraud. So many people respect you and look up to you, but if only they knew. If only they knew who you really are. What you did and what still goes on inside you. There's a song where a lady is singing to her man, and she says in that song, there is a me you would not recognize, dear. You can hear that fear in her. If he really knew me, he'd see how soiled I am, and he'd turn away from me. He only loves me because he doesn't really know me. And if you or I have any desire to be accepted and loved by God, then it gets even worse. Because he does know us. He knows every dark corner of our hearts. 
And you and I, we either know it by instinct or we come to learn it by experience that no amount of religious activity can cleanse those dark corners. We can try it, but even the most devout religious activity cannot clear away an uneasy conscience. Martin Luther was a monk in the Middle Ages. And as he looked back on his life, he remembered how he and his fellow monks would constantly be running to the confessional booth. Those were people who had dedicated their lives to religion. They fasted, they prayed, they did any number of other religious and self-humiliating practices to get near to God. And yet Luther testifies, in those years, nothing could relieve this sense of not being fit for God's examination. He mentions a friend of his who before he could go to a church service would go three times to the confessional booth. Those people were scrupulous about religion, but even living as a monk couldn't clear their conscience. That's true because no amount of devotion on our part can clear our sin. Our conscience condemns us because our sin condemns us. Religious effort can't reach to God's presence and so it cannot reach to our own guilty conscience. Our only hope is that there's something better than our own religious effort. Better than any of the sacrifices we can bring. And thank God, there is something better. Because after telling us what cannot clear our conscience, Hebrews 9 goes on to tell us about the blood that cleanses to the core. Look down to verse 11. But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. In many ways, the work of the Old Testament high priest helps us to understand what Jesus did. But we also need to see the difference in what Jesus did. Verse 11 tells us Jesus went into the true tabernacle, not the copy and shadow that was built with human hands. Jesus went into the greater and more perfect tabernacle. In other words, he didn't go behind a curtain that was woven out of fine linen and embroidered in purple and scarlet and blue thread. Jesus went behind the curtain that separates earth from heaven. 
He went into the full, undiluted presence of God. And verse 12 says, Jesus didn't go there with an offering of animal blood. Those animal sacrifices were not in any way voluntary. No bull ever volunteered himself to be a sacrifice. It was something that happened to those animals. They were passive in the whole thing. But on the cross, Jesus poured out his life as a willing sacrifice. He offered his own blood to deal with our sin. And so his blood became the true means of life for humanity. It was the serious solution that dealt with our serious problem. Jesus' blood paid for every last ounce of your sin and rebellion. All the hatred, the bitterness, the selfishness, all of those things that cry out to God and separate us from God. The Old Testament priest had to repeat his ritual every year. But verse 12 tells us, Jesus offered his own blood once for all. His one sacrifice was enough to wipe away the guilt. If every selfish word, every lustful glance, every deceitful word, every wicked thought and deed. There will never be a day when God says we need another sacrifice. It's done. And so, trusting in Jesus can quiet our uneasy conscience. It can silence that voice in our heart that condemns us for a villain. Jesus' blood is enough to cleanse you to the core. Verse 13 talks about Old Testament rituals that were able to make the people outwardly clean. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Those things that the people could do they would take away ceremonial defilement. So then you could go on living in the camp. You could be among the community. Or if you had been sent away for some reason, if you did the rituals, you could come back in. Those things could give you cleanness in the eyes of other people. But they could not cleanse the deep places within you. And so in Israel, it was possible to be ceremonially clean, but still crushed down with a sense of guilt. And so verse 14 points us to the deeper cleansing that's provided by Jesus' blood. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Jesus was uniquely unblemished. The animals that were offered up had to be without any physical blemish. They were unblemished on the outside. 
But Jesus had a greater purity. There were no dark corners in his heart. There were no hidden sins. He was unblemished all the way through. And so, his sacrifice cleanses us all the way through. It can wash the most guilty conscience and the deepest shame. Earlier we mentioned a statement by Augustine, looking back on the sins of his past and yet able to say, my soul feels no fear from the recollection. How could he say that? Was it because he didn't understand God's holiness? Did he not take God's wrath seriously? No, Augustine got to the point where he took God at his word. He believed God's promise that the blood of Christ is enough. When any man or woman plunges themselves beneath that cleansing flood, they really, really do lose all their guilty stains. Maybe you're a Christian and you know that God has accepted you because of Jesus. You know that in your head, but you still carry around a burden of guilt on your conscience. Maybe there's something in your past and you have brought it to God. You've asked him for forgiveness. You've turned away from it, but you're still carrying around the shame of it. If that describes you today, Will you take God at his word? Will you accept Jesus' blood can wash even the deepest of stains? Even the stain of your sin? There's a hymn that says, A mind at perfect peace with God. Oh, what a word is this. A sinner reconciled through blood. This, this indeed is peace. So dear, so very dear to God. More dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves the Son, such is his love to me. As you and I begin to accept that, as we begin to let that truth soak into our souls, we begin to experience peace. And our service for God begins to change. You and I might carry on doing exactly the same things as before, but we begin to do them with a whole new outlook. Tom Wright explains it like this. We can now serve God gladly and joyfully without the slightest shadow or stain on our consciences, free from any motivation caused by guilt or fear. When our conscience is burdened, we do good things out of guilt to try and work away our uneasy conscience. But it's hopeless. 
When we do good works for that reason, they become what verse 14 calls acts that lead to death. But when you and I recognize the power of Jesus' blood, we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are pure in God's sight. We are welcome in his presence. Not just tolerated, we belong because of Jesus. And then our good works become offerings of thanks to our God. Before we sing, we're going to take a moment to respond to this individually before we respond together. Maybe this morning you need to trust Jesus for the very first time. Or maybe you need to ask God to lead you into perfect peace. As you begin to realize that Jesus' blood is enough even for your guilty stains. So let's have this moment just to be quiet where we are and then we'll move into a song in a minute or two.